listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 21. After our long journey through this beloved gospel, we come to an end of our journey through John with a look at the last half of the last chapter. Praise God. I will miss this, I will miss this gospel, miss being in it. Uh, but the good news is, is we can pick it up and read it anytime we want, even though we're not preaching through it on Sundays. As you're finding uh, John's gospel, chapter 21, um, I'll praise God for Ruben's message last Sunday. I listened to it this week, and I was so encouraged, Thank, thankful for our dear brother, fellow elder Reuben. And I just want to add on to Robert's prayer and say thank God for the primarily Army veterans and those currently serving that have come through our church that are here today. It was 29 years ago that uh, Uncle Sam brought me as a young infantryman to Fort Benning from the country of California. And after getting out of the Army, I stuck around because of a girl. And here I am. I would not have imagined that some 30 years later that I would uh, be here sharing God's Word with a church full of, and of many, many veterans and soldiers. And so we are so thankful for you today. Our passage is an interesting one. It's an interesting way to end the Gospel of John. As Reuben pointed to last week, you might think that the end of John chapter 20 would be a kind of uh, natural ending where John gives us the purpose of writing his gospel, ultimately that he has written these things that we would believe and that by believing we would have life in his name. But then chapter 21 goes on to give us this scene of this casting of the net on the other side that Reuben took us through last week. And here this morning, we look at this, this very famous story that God, John's gospel ends on, and it's the restoration of Peter. So here's what I want to do. We're going to read these 10 or 11 verses, work our way through them, but I want to give you the outline at the beginning so you can kind of hang your mind around these things as, you, as we work through this passage. First, we're going to look at Peter's restoration, and I think ultimately that's what this passage is about, Christ's restoration of Peter. So we're going to look at Peter's restoration. Then we're going to look at Peter's death, or what Jesus tells him his death is going to be like. And then we'll end with Peter's focus. So Peter's restoration, Peter's death, and Peter's focus. Well, before we get into the Word, let me pray one more time and ask the Lord to help us work our way through this text. Lord, uh, I pray that this morning you would help us to have eyes that see the beauty and the clarity of the gospel of your son. Lord, we love the word here, but may that not produce in us a dry academic orthodoxy, but may it produce in us a warm-hearted, affectionate doxology where we praise you because of what we see in the word. May the spirit that inspired the word enliven our hearts afresh this morning, and may you help me help these people see you clearly in the Word. 
so that we might leave this place, if we are already believers, more like Jesus. And for my friends that are gathered here this morning, that they might see Jesus for the first time, that you, by your sovereign grace, would give them a new heart and eyes to see so that they can trust and believe in Jesus. And I pray all of this for your glory and our good and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter, or no, not First Peter, Peter. We're going to get to First Peter in just a second. I'm jumping the gun. I'm so excited about this text. Peter in verse 15, let's read about Peter's restoration in John 21, starting in verse 15. So they've just made this big catch of fish, 153 fish, and they're going to eat some of the fish. They're going to have breakfast, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Well, let's stop there. And I want us to think a moment about Peter's restoration because I think that's what's going on here in this text. Notice that I think this is striking. Uh, Again, Reuben hit upon this last week. Notice that they were fishing. And what are, we going to, what are we to make of this? That, you know, coming out of the resurrection appearance of Jesus, the witness of the empty tomb, Jesus appears to them. And you might think that they're ready to go take the world by force. But yet in verse 3 of our text last week, Peter says, well, I'm going fishing. And the others go along with him. And, and that's been a, a sort of debate through the centuries. So, some people over the years have criticized Peter and the uh, disciples for like, you know, really? Your reaction to the resurrection of Jesus is to go fishing? I mean, come on. And I think we're a little hard on them at times. I mean, you do have to eat even though you're about to take the world by storm with the gospel. The truth is probably somewhere in between. They just didn't really know quite what to do yet. Jesus did tell them, we find recorded in the other Gospels, that they were to go to Galilee and to wait for him. And there's probably this sense where they're sort of waiting. What's, what's going to happen? Well, let, let's just do what we know to do. Let's just go fishing. And Jesus appears to them, and they, they cast a net on the other side, and they bring in this great haul of fish. And then Jesus focuses on Peter. And this is a famous passage, sometimes troubling for people to think like, what's the purpose? What's Jesus getting at here in these three questions? And notice the the phrasing of the first question. Jesus adds a clause on the end of his first question of, of, of Peter that he doesn't add on the other two. He says in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What's the these refer to? It could mean He's asking Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? A kind of comparison. I don't think that's it. Or or maybe he's saying, and this is a possibility, he's saying, do you love me? 
Do you love me more than these fish, like what you, what you have in your hands right now? Do you love me even more than your sustenance? Or, or is he saying, here's a third possibility, do, do you love me more than this way of life, which you've, which you've given yourself to? And I think that probably hits upon what Jesus is getting at here. He's, he's, he's setting Peter up for a lifetime of ministry that he is going to commission Peter as this leader of the disciples. And he is saying, Peter, do you love me more than this, more than this life that, that you've given yourself to for all of these years? You're, you're about to embark on this ministry that I'm going to give you. Do you love me more than this? And Peter does what he only knows to do. He appeals, and I love the way Peter answers him. I think it gets a little uncomfortable for Peter on the third question. In fact, it says that it grieved Peter. But in each instance when Peter answers him, he appeals not to his knowledge of his own heart, but he appeals to the Lord's knowledge of his own heart. And he says, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And Peter, as interesting a character as he is, and as, as wrong as he gets it, sometimes famously wrong, we do see in Peter this just sort of simple faith. We see it all the way back at the beginning of John. In John chapter 6, when uh, Jesus has walked on the water and he's fed the multitudes, and then he preaches a hard sermon and the crowds leave and Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, are you going to go with them? And Peter's the first to confess, and he says, Jesus, Lord, to whom, John 6, verse 68, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So there's this simplicity, this honesty, even in Peter's sort of confusion about why Jesus would press on him three times. And notice this, that Jesus does ask him three times. And this is, this is why this passage is often very well known and sometimes debated through the centuries. Like, what's going on here? Much has been made of Jesus's three same questions of, of, of Peter. Do you love me? What's going on there? Well, the Bible doesn't directly tell us, but I think that the majority, the dominant opinion of Christians through the ages is that there's a connection here between Peter's three denials of Jesus and Jesus asking him three times, it's as if Jesus is taking him back to those three denials. He's restoring him in full for the ministry that he is about to send Peter as the leader of the disciples into. And notice also that he's eating fish that they've just cooked around a fire, the scene the smell of the fire may be smelled very similar to the fire that Jesus or that Peter was around the night of Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion that he denied Jesus in front of. So the, the scene must have been eerily similar to Peter. And Jesus has reconstructed this scene. I think what's happening is Jesus is pressing into Peter's deepest moment of failure. Just like he denied him three times and he's asking him, do you love me three times, to press into that, to tell him that I'm your Lord, I have forgiven you, I know I was there in your deepest, darkest moment of failure, and I'm here, and you're my man still. Don't miss, I think this is the whole point of this passage, really, don't miss the gentle, penetrating mercy and grace of Jesus. You know, he could have said, Jesus could have said, ah, it's all right. I'm resurrected now. Let's move on. Let's let the past be the past. 
But before he moves on with Peter, he goes back to heal and put his finger of gospel grace and life and healing in the very heart of Peter's deepest failure. This is the opposite, friends, of this world's pop psychology. It's the opposite. This world that tells us, you do you. You move past those things that hurt you or that you did in the past. Don't let yourself, this is a phrase, and this is a phrase that I didn't know growing up, but it's become really popular. Don't let anything trigger you. And I don't mean to mean light of things that really do are painful memories, but this word trigger, it's one of those overused words in our culture today. And now we've sort of made ourselves, we've given ourselves so much permission to not deal with painful things that everything becomes a trigger. But Jesus here, in his gentleness and in his love, puts his finger right in the middle of Peter's trigger. And he's creating a scene that would make Peter remember his deepest failure. Do you love me? Yes, yes, of course, Lord. You know, you know I love you. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Three confessions for three denials. Jesus brings it up. Jesus goes right to Peter's trigger. Friends, what do we take home from this? Is that the good news of the gospel is that the gospel heals our deepest failures, our deepest shameful moments in our past. We have the great glorious privilege not to paper over them, not to deny them, not to push them down deep inside, but to give them over to the Lord who does not bring them up for our shame, but for our healing. That's the point. Why does Jesus arrange this scene? Why does he take them there? Because Jesus uses broken, fearful, shameful failures like Peter. Chris read it this morning from our call to worship, Psalm 103. He remembers our frame, and he knows that we are really, really awesome, so that's why he chose us. Oh, that's not what it said. He remembers our frame, and he knows that we are dust. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. This is his conclusion. We have this treasure. He's speaking about the glory of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay, which is us, our broken, potted lives. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So in other words, the whole arrangement of God is not to show how awesome we are or how squared away we are, but how awesome God is in healing all of our failures. That's why Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he's wondering aloud about why God would allow him to suffer with this thorn in his flesh that he pleaded with God to take away three times. And, and he concludes rightly that it's a messenger sent by Satan, but ultimately by, it's a messenger of Satan, ultimately sent by God for his good to produce in him a humility. And this is his conclusion in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. But he said to me, speaking of Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul concludes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think Paul, like Peter, was a man acquainted 
with his shame, acquainted with his triggers, and he brought the gospel to bear on that failure. Colossians chapter 2, we dwelt on this verse a few weeks ago when we looked at Christ on the cross and what he has done with our sin. Listen to Paul, he says, Colossians 2 verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. You were dead and God made you alive. That's how you became a Christian. It's not like you ginned up enough good works in order to make yourself acceptable to God. You were dead and God made you alive. The sovereign new birth. God moved on your soul. He gave you where there was nothing. He made something where there was no faith. He gave faith where there was no spiritual interest. He produced it. He regenerated you. He took what was dead and made it alive. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Isn't that interesting? I love how Paul uses the word shame there. Because ultimately what's happening on the cross, think about Peter specifically, this moment of deep shame where he denied Jesus. And think about the schizophrenic spirituality of Peter. Just moments earlier, he was courageous enough to chop off Malchus's ear and say, let's go, Jesus. Let's not let these Romans take you. And then just moments later, he's lying about whether he knows Jesus in front of a campfire in front of a teenage girl. Don't you think that produced some shame in you? And here, what Paul is saying is that because of what Jesus has done on the cross to bear the wrath of God for our shame, our failure, our sin, our rebellion, now our shame that Jesus covers through his sacrifice on the cross and extinguishes God's wrath for our shame, failure, and sin, he turns it around and uses it to shame principalities and powers that would convict us. You know, it's, it's kind of like my brother. I think I've told you this story before. He would let me box him, and I would hit him, and I couldn't hit him in the face. And at, when he had enough, then he would just sort of grab me and put me down on the ground and take my fists and beat me in my own face with him. By the way, my brother's going to be, my brother and his wife uh, will be here with us next Sunday. And so that might be kind of working out therapy session for me uh, next Sunday. So you can talk to him about that. But that's what God does. He, he uses the devil's accusations against us, against him. And what, this is the glory of the gospel. What once brought us shame because Jesus has borne the wrath for it, God now turns it around to shame the principalities and powers that would accuse us. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. So here's the application before we move on, friends. Don't, don't resist or run from the Spirit when he wants you to take you, he wants to take you to that place where you're most shameful. Don't hide. Be healed. Be restored. We can face our fears, our failures, our worst moments in Christ. We can do that. That's what's happening here in this campfire where they're eating fish. Jesus is restoring. Peter, by reminding him that he's forgiven his deepest failure. And he's still saying to him, you're my man, not because of what's in you, but because of me who's in you. 
For a friend, do you have this shame that you, did you spend so much spiritual energy just covering yourself up when the conversation may be drifting in a group of Christian friends to something that might embarrass you or something that might reveal your shame? Do you strategically move the conversation or remove yourself? Or do you, do you kind of keep people at fellowship and kind of an arm's length because you don't want people to really know who you are if you are living like that, friends? And Christians do that every day. I have done that in my life. It takes a tremendous amount of energy, and it will never satisfy your soul. Friends, we can face, we can face our past in Christ, and what we find there is a Christ who loves us and forgives us and restores his people. That's Peter's restoration. Let's look now at Peter's death. Verses 18 and 19. So Jesus is he's restored Peter. There's this intense scene. Yes, Lord, I love you. I love you. Now look at verses 18 and 19. An interesting turn. Truly, truly, I say to you. So Peter's just said, I've loved you. Third response. I love you. I love you. Yes, I love you. Now as Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and Walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Okay? Now, let's admit, let's kind of pull back a little bit, and let's admit that this conversation takes an unexpected, and at least on the surface, a less than encouraging turn. You might think, you might expect Jesus to say, good answer, Peter. That's what I was looking for. Now go get him, tiger, boy. But that's not what he says. Instead, he tells Peter, after Peter has rightly told him, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. Then Jesus transitions into a prophetic word about how Peter is going to die. And it's going to be by crucifixion. That's what was alluded to there when he says that someone will stretch out your hands and dress you and carry you where you you do not want to go. And we know from church history that Peter did die by crucifixion. Legend has it, we don't know this for certain, legend has it that Peter, upon his crucifixion, asked, requested that he be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy enough to be crucified in the same manner as the Lord. We don't know that to be fact. But we know that Peter died this type of brutal death. So what's going on here? After this intense exchange where Jesus restores Peter, and Peter affirms his love, and Jesus affirms his grace for Peter and his usefulness, and tells him, now you're my man, go feed my sheep. Give them what will become the New Testament, the word of the apostles, which is the foundation of the church in the New Testament, which is our foundation today. As Peter becomes the leader of these men commissioned to plant the church, to write the New Testament, he takes this turn and he says, and oh, by the way, this is how you're going to die. It's going to be a horrible death. Follow me. Notice what effect this has on Peter through his life. This same man who was afraid of being associated with Jesus just weeks before now is being assured that association with Jesus is going to bring about a very difficult death for him. What effect does this 
prophecy about his death from Jesus, what effect does it have through his life? Well, let's read. Let's look at Peter's life as we progress in the New Testament. On the day of Pentecost, does this send, does this, does this prediction by Jesus send Peter cowering? No, it has the opposite effect. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit has fallen on the, New, on the New Testament church. It's birthed on the day of Pentecost. People were speaking in tongues, which is translated into other languages, which is other languages of all the Jews gathered from the dispersion of the Jews through the centuries before in captivity. They're hearing the beautiful truth and oracles of God in their own language. People are surmising that they're drunk. But Peter stands up and preaches this powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 22. This is what Peter says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What a courageous sermon. Peter, Jesus has told him just weeks before, you're going to die a martyr's death on the cross. And what does that produce in Peter? Great steel in his spine. A few verses later, what does Peter say? He says, let all the house, verse 36 of Acts 2, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, the crowd, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, does that sound like a man who's fearful about the future? No, he stands up and he says, repent, trust in Jesus. You crucified him, repent and believe in his name. Well, let's ask ourselves, this is the day of Pentecost. As Peter's death approaches, what Jesus told him that he would die this way, does Peter's courage wane? Does it soften? No, his courage lasts. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, later in his life. Beloved, do, this is a man who knows how he's going to die. Not when, but how. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, listen to verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
This was Peter's conclusion. Later in his life, as he was approaching this martyr's death that Jesus told him that he would have, he said, look, I I am going to entrust myself and I will suffer according to God's will. God knows what he's doing. My life is his. That's Peter's conclusion. And it should be our conclusion as well. We need to take note of this. Take note of this, friends, that knowing, knowing that God ordained suffering for him in his life. I'm not talking about just generally, because listen, we, you know that we, we are a church of a theological persuasion that puts a high accent on the utter and exhaustive sovereignty of God in all things. And we like to quote people in the history of the church that amplified this particular doctrine of the sovereignty of God and providence of God. And praise God for that. I don't, in fact, I might do that here in just a second. But it's one thing for it to be sort of 30,000 foot in the air and say, yeah, yeah, we're theologically faithful. Yeah, God's in control. And it's another thing to actually appropriate it for yourself in your life. And I want you to see that in Peter's life. Let Peter's words be not so much a letter in the Bible, but the testimony of a man who's writing these things, who knows that he is going to be crucified. And he says, I'm entrusting myself to God. I'm entrusting myself to God. And I'm going to suffer for him. And friends, then bring that into your own life. It's one thing to have a a generalized doctrine of providence, but it's another thing to actually have to be called by God to live it out. A a, a sickness, a a diagnosis from the doctor, a a relationship that goes south, a a child that is rebellious, and a a job that is lost, a, a life that seems to be falling apart. What good is this doctrine if it just hangs up in the air as a theological category? Friends, you have to grab a hold of this. This is in the Bible for a reason, not just to be a doctrinal theory, but to be something that you live from. And notice the wisdom of Jesus. He, before he launches Peter out to give his life away, tells him how drastically And horribly, he's going to die. I want you to get a hold of that logic by Jesus and what it's meant to do for us. You know, at the risk of uh, making you mad at me, which uh, is, I I think I need to do occasionally if I'm a good preacher. Um, And I've said this too, so don't get too too upset at me. Let's 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 just own the unbiblical nature of this phrase together. Can we do that? Let's just own this right now. Let's just kind of all put ourselves in the same basket and let's just say, hey, friends, let's stop saying this. What is it that I think we should stop saying? When something good happens in our life and we say, oh, that was a God thing. As if everything else wasn't a God thing too. You think Peter? Okay, he has this conversation with Jesus week later, you know, James, when, hey, what? Man, you would not believe what Jesus told me. It was a God thing. He said that I am going to be crucified like him. It was a God thing. 
Friends, here's the great, here's the great, here's the great privilege for the Christian. Everything's a God thing. Everything is. I told you I'd read from some old dead guys. Let me read. I can't resist it. You've heard this before. I love it. This is the Belgic Confession of Faith, one of the great confessions that came out of the Protestant Reformation. This is paragraph 13, the doctrine of God's providence. These are some of the sweetest words, I think, in the history of the church outside of Scripture. I've read this before. I love the, the, this, this, this paragraph 13. It says, we believe that this good, this is written in the mid to late 1500s. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Bring that into your life, friends. Yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs. For his power and his goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. Let me pause there and you say, well, how does that work, Brad? I can only refer you back to the word incomprehensible. I don't exactly know. We do not, listen to this. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples, so as to lean, learn, so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us <laughs> that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under His control so that not one of the hairs of our, on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. And that includes you, Peter, by the way. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. And let me just add, parenthetically, let me add to one of the great statements of faith. How, how arrogant is that? But let me just add, parenthetically, and if he chooses to let those things touch us, he's merely using it as a tool for his glory and our good. And we rest in that. Friends, everything is a God thing. Rest in this picture of that in Peter's life and let it put steel in your spine. We conclude with Peter's focus. Verses 20 through 23. I love this. So just think about all that's gone on. So he has this intense moments with Jesus. He's restored to ministry. Three questions. It's uncomfortable. Jesus puts his finger on his failure, says, follow me, tells him he's going to die a martyr's death. Then they take a walk down the beach, and this is what Peter says. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's referring to John, following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, meaning John, he said to Jesus, Lord, 
What about this man? Ah, Peter, you got got to love him. I mean, you just, you got to love him. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? Follow, you follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? I think Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here. He's just saying, Peter, Peter, Peter. If we could sort of summarize this in my, worry about yourself, boy. And he just sort of says, hypothetically, look, if I want John to, to, to stay alive for two centuries, for, for two millennia until I come back or whenever, that, that, that's up to me. I do what I want with my people. But as for you, you follow me. Friends, aren't we like Peter? We can hear glorious things. We can revel in the good news of the gospel. We can gather with our brothers and sisters and and exult in the beauty of grace. And we can walk out of this place on cloud nine spiritually, ready to take on the world. And then Tuesday morning comes and we're like, oh man, where's God? Wait, 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 what about this joker over here? Isn't that, come on, isn't that strangely comforting that the man who is about to lead this band of misfit toys who will take over the world with the gospel and spread it abroad, the Roman Empire, is so dim-witted that after this glorious interaction with Jesus, he's looking around saying, what about John? Oh, Lord, we, we are like this. We are like this, Lord. What about, what about what about that guy who's a, you know, come on, let's not let it float. Don't, don't let it float in the air. What about that guy who's doing better than me? That mom whose kids are more behaved, better behaved than me, that eat kale and fall asleep to Beethoven when they're six months old. <laughs> that mom, that Facebook group mom. What about that knucklehead that, got promoted to E6 before me, and he couldn't find his way out of a wet paper sack. What about that guy? What about that knucklehead that I know is just not, he's not a good leader, he's not a good businessman, but he gets promoted. What, there's just this impulse in us, even though we believe these things and know these things, to compare ourselves to others And Jesus even has to redirect the heart of great Peter after this great interaction. Worry about yourself. Worry about yourself. You, as it concerns you, Brad, as it concerns you, dear brother, sister, you follow me. It will, it is worth it. And this is how John concludes. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. John is speaking about himself. And who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Listen to this sentence. I don't think this is hyperbole. This is, this is a stunning statement. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What a glorious Lord. Why did John write this gospel? Well, he tells us at the end of the previous chapter 
that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So I pray that if you're a believer and you already have that belief in Jesus, that your faith has been strengthened and fortified as we work through this gospel so that you, so that God might use this as part of his means so that you would endure to the end. And if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, I pray that God will use this message, this gospel, this good news of how Jesus heals, how Jesus takes our sin, how Jesus alone is our life, and that you, by God's sovereign grace, will be moved upon by his spirit, that he would give you what he requires of you, and that you would turn and trust in him, not because you're bringing anything to him, but because you realize for the first time that you have nothing to offer. And even though that might feel sort of helpless, that's a wonderful place to be before the Lord. In fact, it's the place we all must be when we come to him. And in fact, we must stay. Nothing in my hands I bring, the hymn says, simply to thy cross I cling. I pray that you would trust and have the new birth and faith in Jesus. Well, before I pray, we have the great privilege to see a sister, a new member of our church, be baptized. What a privilege to see the good news of this gospel even played out in her testimony, which will be read, and in her baptism. So let me pray, and then the worship team will come and lead us in a song of response, and then we'll see this dear sister, Devana, be baptized. Lord, take these words, take this gospel, I pray, and use it in the life of Crosspoint to produce in us what John intended when he wrote it by your spirit to cause us to believe that we might have life in your name. Do what only you can do in the hearts of your people and those that you are drawing to yourself for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.